investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors and podcast listeners to episode 39 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is a chilly Monday, November 11th, 2019. Have a number of important uh, market events to chat about on this week's podcast. Off the top, we're going to chat about CP. PIB, that's the Canada Pension Plan, they acquired one of Canada's biggest wind power producers for $2.6 billion. What's the strategic rationale behind this? Another private equity or pension fund infrastructure deal. We're going to talk about Walgreens. They're considering going private in the largest leverage buyout of all time. What are the chances of it happening? In IPO land, GFL Environmentals, which was supposed to be Canada's biggest IPO in a very long time, it actually flopped. Why did they end up pulling the deal? Also, in international IPO news, Saudi Aramco, they launched their much-anticipated IPO that could value the company at up to $2 trillion, which would be the largest company in the world. Should investors buy the stock? And lastly, we'll have a quick overview of October Factor Performance. Interesting infrastructure deal this week as the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board announced the acquisition of wind power producer Pattern Energy Group for 6.1 billion US dollars. This is inclusive of debt, so on a market cap basis, equity of 2.6 billion. This is a friendly deal struck at 26.75 cash per share. This represented a premium of about 15%, which is on the skimpier side. We typically see uh, control premiums on a takeover at around 25%. So 15%, uh, not too great of a price. However, this asset was uh, pretty widely shopped in the market. Their strategic alternatives process was well known in the media, pretty well publicized. But this deal, it reflects Canada's largest pension funds, increasing demand for both renewable power and stable infrastructure assets. Now, this is really shown in the valuation of the deal. CPP paying 14.4 uh, times next year's EBITDA, which is a fairly steep price, but that just shows how much in demand these type of assets are, these uh, stable cash flowing infrastructure assets in the eyes of institutional investors such as uh, pension funds like CPP. Now what Pattern uh, Energy Group does, there's a, they're an independent power producer with a portfolio of 28 renewable energy product projects. They have an operating capacity of about 4.4 gigawatts in the US, Canada, and Japan. And some background on CPP, they're at 400 billion dollar pension funds, one of the largest in the world, one of the most sophisticated investors in the world as well. Their goal is to pay the benefits owed to workers in the, uh, and Canadians in the Canada Pension Plan, which is uh, they actually created a standalone group to hold power and renewable assets just a couple years ago. So this is a continuation of that trend. They've already invested more than 2.1 billion in renewable energy proje projects since uh, that creation of that group. Uh, and they really see a disconnect between uh, private market value of those and public market interest in those renewable energy stocks. 
Nonetheless, like I said, this offer 15% premium, so not uh, not a knockout bid by any means, but this was a well-shopped asset, shopped on a public basis. So what's interesting is that number one, uh, the stock was trading at $27.80 prior to this deal being announced at $26.75. So obviously the market and uh, pre-arbitrage speculators, which we discussed on last week's episode, they were expecting a much higher premium on this deal. So unfortunately for them, this pre-arb trade did not work out. They're getting less uh, than expected. So that premium is based on the unaffected price prior to announcing this sale process. And the 2675 takeover price is actually a pretty substantial discount to what uh, the market was expecting as it was trading quite a bit higher than the ultimate price. Uh, nonetheless, uh, CPPIB and the merger agreement, they're actually allowing Penner Pattern Energy to shop itself. They have a so-called go shop provision, which allows Pattern Energy to go to uh, other buyers until December 8th to seek a higher bid, which is really unusual in this context, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this may have been part of their strategy to perhaps pay a bit less of a premium, uh, judging by the quotes from CPPIB as they do. Um, they, they won't comment on any other potential bidders uh, joining the fray, but, you know, their comments of that they do believe they uh, provided the adequate value to uh, pattern shareholders. You know, speaking of pattern shareholders, uh, they the shares have underperformed competitors such as Brookfield Renewable Partners and some others over the last five years. Um, so there is likely some frustration amongst, uh, amongst shareholders there. Um, so CPPIB looking to take advantage of that. In terms of other companies that may be interested, is you know Brookfield Renewables parent company Brookfield Asset Management. Uh, there's it was reported that there's likely some interest from them. But as as you had mentioned, Julian, they have already had an extensive bidding process. So if Brookfield was interested, they likely would have already um, put in a bid. Um, but one thing that you mentioned with regards to the pre-arbs is, you know, that they didn't do very well on this. You know, they, you know, depending on when they did invest, um, they might have lost some money on this uh, pre-arb speculation. So it really does just highlight some of the riskiness that when we did discuss pre-arbitrage um, and those situations, we did mention the risk and this is a classic example of the risk is there's always an, an amount of deal speculation um, but you know sometimes it really doesn't pay off to get involved in those situations and one other uh, aspect just in terms of the strategic rationale from cppib um, moving forward taking them private is as a private company they it is believed that they may be able to increase their leverage profile um, and with very stable assets such as these that are quite leveraged, uh, it is one of the main mechanisms to increase your return on equity as the sponsor. Interesting. I just wanted to comment on the trading. Now, this offer price is at $26.75 and the stock's trading at $27.50, which uh, on first glance appears to be at a premium uh, to the takeover price, but it in fact is not because you need to look at the total return, which is inclusive of dividends. Panard has a relatively high dividend yield, roughly 6%. So if you include all those 
dividends up to your estimated close. It's actually trading at a discount to the consideration, roughly 2.3% annualized, which isn't really pricing in a bidding war, uh, really not pricing in much upside uh, beyond the current deal. However, it's pricing in a relatively low risk deal. And I would certainly consider this a low risk deal. Obviously, no real competition, regulatory concerns, and CPP is obviously you know the, uh, a buyer of the highest quality. Uh, doesn't really get uh, more high quality than the $400 billion pension fund behemoth in their wheelhouse of acquiring infrastructure assets. So for risk arbs, fairly safe deal, 2.3% annualized return that you can really bank on as a merger arbitrage. Fascinating story in the leveraged buyout space with Dow Jones Industrial Average constituent Walgreens Boots Alliance has been in discussions to go private in what could be the largest leveraged buyout in history. Some background on the company, Walgreens Boots is the largest retail pharmacy in the US and Europe with uh, nearly 20,000 stores in 11 countries. It operates Walgreens and Dwayne Reed stores in the US and Boots outlets in Europe and Asia. Three quarters of its revenue comes from their US pharmacy business. Now this pharmacy behemoth, they're one of the largest out there. They've been in discussions with several private equity firms and this was reported in the media last week for an LBO valued well over 70 billion, which is just massive in size. To give you uh, some context, with respect to the size of the bid, this would be by far the largest LBO in history. Uh, the previous largest or the current largest uh, LBO in history, I should say, was the 2007 sale of utility TXU Corp to KKR and TPG, which was worth about 45 billion, which also ended in disaster. It ended up going bankrupt and uh, LBO shops lost their shirt on that one. So certainly a pretty ominous sign competing for that title of largest leverage buyout in history. The other really interesting aspect of this deal which investors should really take into account is this would be the second time that Walgreens has been taken private the last time being again in 2007 they were uh, LBO'd by KKR and you notice that name coming up a lot and ironically KKR this time has approached Walgreens for a second LBO on the same company which you don't see all that often but it is quite interesting nonetheless but in my opinion you have two real ominous signs with this proposed LBO of Walgreens. Number one, the largest LBO of all time if you look at the current record holder uh, TXU in 2007. Number one, not only was that a massive disaster in that it uh, ended up in tears for the private equity firms backing the deal, but also it marked the previous cycle peak uh, for the last business cycle right before the world spiraled into the uh, Great Recession 2008-2009. The other aspect investors should take into account is back when Walgreens did their first LBO that was also in 2007 also peak of the cycle so you take that analogy and look at it this time you got to wonder is that marking the peak of the current business cycle what are your thoughts on it yeah it certainly is an interesting aspect and and one one aspect that i did want to point out was the initial merger as you had mentioned between alliance boots and walgreens back in 2007. now this was kind of a um, exit for KKR at the time where Walgreens acquired them and this was obviously very viewed as very favorably uh, very favorable for KKR as instead they had kind of had a couple options to exit their their position 
that either do a secondary offering where you would have to list, you would have to market your shares at a discount to that current price or find an acquire and get acquired at a premium to the price. So that's, that's kind of a little background of why a private equity backer would really look for a strategic acquirer uh, as opposed to, you know, the secondary issue is kind of their last resort. Yeah, it's an interesting comment on the structure of leveraged buyout funds because they have a fixed term, typically seven years. So they'll buy a company and look to flip it within that seven years. But now what's happening instead of owning Walgreens the entire time, KKR raised a fund, bought it, flipped it, exited, then raise another fund looking to buy it again, which is just, uh, you know, you look at that and, and all the inefficiencies that that involves, but nonetheless, a significant number of fees for the LBO sponsor, of course. Absolutely. And you did mention, you know, raising another fund. So Bloomberg actually reported that KKR's America's 7 fund has about $8.25 billion of dry powder cur currently. So if you, you know, with the current uh, trading of Walgreens, if you assume a 10% premium uh, to buy out shareholders and equity making up about 40% of the funding as these trends, as they are leveraged buyouts, uh, then a PE consortium, as it's been reported that this would likely have to be a club deal, they it wouldn't be able to just be KKR. Oh, it would certainly have to be. I, I think the largest LBO fund of all time might have been uh, Apollo or Blackstone at 20 billion. Yes, and, and so in terms of the equity portion that they would need for this transaction would be over $30 billion. So, you know, KKR doesn't have that in their America 7 fund. Um, and then beyond that, they would have to raise another, you know, 40-ish billion dollars in debt financing. So really, this would be something that would be very large just in terms of the scope of including some of these large players on the private equity side, but as well as the leverage loan market, uh, which would be very interesting to see what demand there would be for a loan such as this. Right, not just levered loans, but junk bonds as well. And there's two interesting dynamics there. Number one is on the debt side, you know, 40, 50 billion dollars. We have seen quite a few uh, number of deals like that. Um, I remember a big one was uh, the Verizon acquisition of Vodafone's interest in their U.S. business, which was a massive debt deal, which went uh, pretty much without a hitch. And I think if this deal were to happen, that the debt side would be the very, very easy side because interest rates are so low. There's just so much demand with anything with a hint of yield on it. I think these loans and bonds, of which there'd be many, would be structured uh, you know, into many different slices. I think that would sell quite easily. However, you mentioned this large equity check, which would pretty much need to involve at least a half dozen LBO shops, it appears, just to come up with that size of equity check. I think that will be much more challenged to get that many private equity firms on side and club deals used to be very popular last cycle, but uh, a lot of firms soured on that type of structure. So we'll see if that sort of structure re-emerges. I wanted to touch on the strategic rationale. Now the CEO of Walgreens has a 16% stake and he's pretty frustrated with share price. It's lost 28% of its value over the past year. Uh, which is pretty bad when uh, S&P 500 has been doing nothing but going up. So life as a public company has been pretty traumatic for them. Walgreens shares have fallen uh, pretty precipitously. They're racing to uh, cut staff, close stores. They have this big uh, cost-cutting program, which perhaps they perceive as public markets not really being too friendly with that restructuring. 
So this buyout would give Walgreens time to adapt to a fast-changing retail landscape free apparently from the quarter-to-quarter -quarter demands of public shareholders. That's what the company's claiming, but I mean, what private equity firm doesn't care about quarterly performance, right? So you got to look at the market action here, stock up about 10% uh, over the past week as the market prices the chance of success of this happening into the market. As do the bonds, bonds trading down 2.5%, so obviously this deal would be negative on the bonds as they would load the company with debt. As for chances of this happening, I mean, it's, it's definitely less than 50% in my opinion. Um, you know, massive challenges just coming up with the financing here. Uh, obviously, valuations are quite high, but nonetheless, you look on the other side of the coin, private equity firms have record amount of dry powder, which they need to put to work. And uh, ultimately, putting that money to work means more fees for the private equity firms. So they are certainly incented to get a big deal like this done. Absolutely. And so just in terms of some of that incentive as well, is that the company has actually been returning capital to shareholders over the last uh, couple of years at a pretty high rate. So it currently has a 2.9% dividend yield and they bought back shares, about 7% of shares uh, last year. So a share, our preferred metric, the shareholder yield at about 10%. Now that could likely be allocated, a vast majority of that could be allocated to debt pay down in an LBO situation. So that gives a little bit of insight into the favorability that um, would be looked upon by KKR to this business model, even though it hasn't been growing, their EPS really hasn't been growing. Uh, one last thing I did want to mention was that Berkshire Hathaway was mentioned by Barron's as another possible suitor in this situation. Um, although it must be noted that, you know, Berkshire doesn't typically participate in auctions. And so it does appear that this deal is being shopped around and so um, likely would you know, result in, in Warren Buffett and Berkshire not being interested in it. Some interesting IPO news and continuing trend of IPO flops. This time it was GFL Environmental. So this was supposed to be one of the largest Canadian IPOs uh, in many years, um, but it failed to generate sufficient interest and was ultimately pulled. Yeah, this deal flopped. And what happened was investors balked at the valuation. GFL came out at a marketing range of 20 to $24 per share. Uh, and they have a pretty significant debt level. And with that level of risk, investors really had no interest at that price. I did hear that there was some interest, uh, could have maybe gotten done at 18 bucks a share, uh, but ultimately uh, the sponsors and the company uh, chose to withdraw the deal and maybe come back to the market at a later date instead of taking that lower valuation that what, what they wanted. Now what GFL does, they're an Ontario-based waste hauler and they have, as I said, a massive amount of debt. They're pursuing this consolidation strategy, this roll-up strategy, and from that they, they have accumulated 6.5 billion of debt, not just that, but they have yet to be profitable. Over the past three fiscal years, they've lost a cumulative $737 million. The first six months of 2019, they lost $161 million. So unprofitable, highly leveraged company. Where have we seen this before? Um, and one example of an IPO flop was Endeavor, the owner of the UFC. That was a leveraged buyout. Investors balked at that deal based on debt concerns and valuation. So that deal ended up getting 
pulled. Another one which we've discussed ad nauseum was WeWork, not necessarily on the debt side, but it was a valuation issue in addition to corporate governance. Nonetheless, this GFL deal was expected to raise as much as $2.4 billion. Uh, that's in US dollars. So if we compare that to other landmark deals in Canadian history, there's only a few comparable. Ottawa's sale of Canadian National Railway in 1995, that netted $2.2 billion. Manulife Financial's first public offering in 1999, which raised $2.5 billion. So this really ranks up there with some of the largest IPOs in Canadian history. And then you look, uh, this was supposed to be an exit for the private equity backers, which include BC Partners and Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. But it just shows you the strength of the private markets. There's just so much capital there that companies don't need to rush to go public anymore because they now have the luxury of deferring an IPO, hit up their sponsors for more private equity and just stay on the private side and not worry about it. Try to hit the market when there's better market conditions. But I mean, can market conditions get any better than as they are right now? Absolutely. And, it, and I mean, as you'd mentioned, you know, an IPO or an acquisition is just one of the exit strategy or a couple of the exit strategies used by private equity. So really, it's this is another example. And I believe when BC Partners and Ontario Teachers had uh, acquired their stake in uh, GFL, they had bought the company, I believe this was in 2018, um, from HPS Investment Partners, McGuarrie, and Hawthorne Equity. And so really the exit now has been to exit to another private equity firm. So that really isn't a sustainable exit strategy. So it will be interesting to see how this will end up, you know, some of the deployment of private equity capital initially into these transactions uh, as some of these well, well-worn uh, IPO, IPO acquisition exit strategies become less less available. Um, so that'll be something really interesting to to follow here. Right, and with those continuous exits to other private equity shops, which we refer to as LBO hot potato. It's really a game of musical chairs. You can only really play that song and dance um, you know, a limited number of times because uh, you know you can only leverage buy out a company so many times. And this, the other potential exit strategy is always to a strategic acquire, but on GFL, I'm not sure if there'd be any strategic appetite on a highly leveraged company like this one. So I think public markets is probably ultimately their best uh, source of exit. Ultimately, the sellers here, it appears that they're kind of getting a bit greedy. Nonetheless, have a quote from the CEO, Patrick Davigi here. He stated that the existing shareholders have determined that at US $18 per share, we don't believe that represents fair value for the company. So the shareholders have decided to inject more equity into the business to fund the future growth of the company and revisit the public markets at a later date. So there you have it, GFL pulling their IPO for now, uh, perhaps revisiting it at a later date, but uh, it'll to be seen if market conditions are any more favorable at that point. In an IPO that looks like it's about to go ahead, Saudi Arabia, their state-owned oil company, Saudi Aramco, they officially moved forward with their plans for an IPO. They filed their prospectus just a couple days ago on Saturday, 600 pagers, so, so a lot of information in there. Now, this IPO is expected to be the largest of all time uh, of the, uh, the whole world. 
uh, not just U.S., which has been uh, home to some massive IPOs. I be, believe Alibaba might have been uh, the largest at $20 billion. However, this one could be uh, significantly more than that. They're estimating between 15 to $30 billion. Now, this would represent only 1% to 2% of the company, making it very, very unique because this will be a very a small portion of the company that they're seeking to IPO. Initially, uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a.k.a. MBS, he touted a value valuation of two trillion for Saudi Ramco. Now you're having you're hearing market analysts saying that is uh, it's just too high of a valuation, looking to be perhaps 1.2 to 1.5 trillion dollars. And where this valuation is coming from is based on dividend yields. So Ramco said it would pay out 75 billion in dividends uh, next year. So at the valuation of 1.5 trillion, the company would be yielding a 5% dividend yield, which is comparable to Royal Dutch Shell at 6% and Chevron at around 4%. Uh, what are your thoughts on the valuation process behind this one? Yeah, it really seems like they are pushing the valuation based on the dividend yield. So, you know, very similar to just a preferred preferred share offering or subordinated debt um, rather than equity, um, but as well as other valuation methods. Now, when the underlying assets of Aramco were nationalized in the 1970s, the owners, which are now Exxon and Chevron, uh, were compensated at book value. Forced sellers. Yes, they were very much forced sellers. So, I mean, you're never going to get a fair price in that sort of situation. Uh, but if the market were to value Aramco on this basis, it would actually be only valued at about 380 billion. But, you know, when looking at an energy company, book value really isn't the proper proper metric to be valuing them at as it is a cash flow generating company so it makes more sense to be valuing it on a cash on a cash flow multiple uh, but I did think that, that was very interesting just in terms of the different valuation tools used between then and now um, but I mean looking at the the offering and I mean this is I believe the first time this was announced was in 2016 right, when yeah. MBS had originally brought up, um, you know, floating some of the company. Right, over three years ago. Yes, and there's been plenty of different, you know, detours from this as, I mean, now it looks like it will only be a listing in Riyadh, no longer looking at a co-listing in London or New York or anything like that uh, at this current iteration of the plan. But, you know, when looking at it as an investor, being a minority shareholder and with the disclosure concerns that you do have with a government entity, um, which, you know, Saudi Aramco really is, you know, it, it really makes it, a, this equity, a risky proposition uh, despite its large size, because, I mean, it's being, it's being, you know, marketed as a dividend yield, but, you know, that a dividend can be cut, it can be changed at any point in time, and it, it can also be increased, but you know, it can be changed at any point in time. So, you really aren't protected on the downside here, despite this being a very, very large cap name, right? And so, it's a real tricky one here to justify buying. Uh, not only do you basically have no rights because the Saudi Arabian government will control this. They're only selling one to 2%. So obviously shareholders pretty much have zero say, no rights. And you gotta be concerned on the corporate governance uh, with respect to a state-owned entity. That's always an issue more so even here, just given uh, you know the geographic nature of this and some of the history behind that. The other thing you gotta consider, as you mentioned, it's only trading on the Saudi Arabian exchange, uh, which limits 
limits retail participation. Uh, I believe you need to be a mutual fund of at least half a billion dollars in assets in order to trade on there. So retail investors can't really get access to it uh, outside of uh, a fund structure. But nonetheless, uh, at the valuation with uh, corporate, corporate governance issues and the lack of shareholder rights, this is a pretty easy one to pass on, especially since it's so difficult to trade for investors. And lastly, I wanted to touch on October monthly factor performance. Uh, first off, in the US, you had the multi-factor model down a couple percent, and that was largely driven by uh, negative factor performance at a quality and operating momentum. Largely on the short side, you had a big rally in the low quality names and also on stocks whose price momentum uh, was poor over the past 12 months. They had a bit of a dead cat bounce in October. Uh, on the positive returning side, value continues to do well, up 3.5% on a long-only basis in the U.S. And then overvalued names actually dropped 2.5%, adding to the U.S. long-short value outperformance. Uh, but you add up all of our factors and that ended up in a negative 2% long short multi-factor return. However, in Canada, you get a different story. Actually, it's 7.5% of alpha from the long short multi-factor portfolio. And that was driven by two factors. Largely, you had very good value performance. But what's interesting about value long short is that on the long side, it actually dropped uh, about half a percent. Where all of the value performance and more came from was on the short side. So stocks with negative EBITDA, stocks with negative free cash flow, that's how we view uh, kind of the worst value stocks. They actually dropped 12%. Uh, giving a lot of positive performance to the short side of that trade. The other thing on the trend side, so your long trend portfolio up, up over 5%, your short trend portfolio down over 4%, so you had positive performance there. You combine those two factors along with the other ones, uh, results in net alpha for 7.5% uh, for the multi-factor long short portfolio. So in summary, uh, Good performance out of Canada, poor performance out of the US, but value continues to outperform. And what this really highlights is something that we've mentioned before, you know, the differences between factor investing and smart beta, is it really highlights the importance when you're trying to extract alpha out of these factors that we've identified is investing on the short side as well to capture that full factor premium. Not just that, but it provides the benefit of diversification. So you can capitalize on uh, generating returns from market drawdowns or just poor performance of those stocks that we expect to not do so well. And that's it for us, episode 39 of the Absolute Return Podcast. As always, if you enjoyed it, you can check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Uh, feel free to recommend it to your friends, coworkers, family. Leave us a review if you'd like. Until next week, we will chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained 
this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.